when you get into a high functioning village, all of a sudden you, you have a sense of belonging, a sense of identity, positive identity, and a sense of accountability. Hey, we have all decided that we're not littering uh, this place up at all. We've all decided that we're gonna keep our stuff within these confines. We've all decided we're not leaving anything behind. We've all decided to rake the, the leaves on the um, sidewalks. And then all of a sudden, that kind of activity, sharing of chores, uh, brings people together to the point that they don't resent society and, and, and are not as contemptuous as society. Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy. And thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community and beyond. Charles Durnett is an architect, author, and advocate of affordable, socially responsible, and sustainable design. He is an advocate for the homeless. He has developed several projects to house the homeless. In his newest book, A Solution to Homelessness, he describes the way the small town of American Canyon in Napa Valley, California, built housing for their homeless citizens. He has made major contributions to community-based architecture and co-housing. Charles has designed over 50 co-housing communities in North America and has consulted on many more around the world. He also designed an equal number of affordable housing projects. His work has been featured in Time Magazine, New York Time, LA Times, San Francisco Chronicle, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, the Guardian, Architectural Record, Wall Street Journal, and The Economist, as well as a wide variety of other publications. The importance of giving the homeless a chance to rebuild their lives by housing cannot be underestimated. But helping them form communities where they feel safe and emotionally supported is even more helpful to their recovery. Charles Durnett's book, A Solution to Homelessness in Your Town, shows a path forward. Chuck, welcome to the show. I am so excited to talk about this whole tiny house situation. And let's start with your book, A Solution to Homelessness. It's a very succinct book about a couple of solutions that are becoming some of the more popular solutions around the U.S. right now. In fact, I went to a a 300-person all-housing, especially homeless experts in California, and they described the path of least resistance, the low-hanging fruit to homeless projects, is to start a, for example, a volunteer-based self-build situation with homeless people and volunteers to build like we did in Eugene, eight by eight by eight tiny houses with a door and a window. And then all of the uh, accoutrements like showers and laundry all became common, but they had nothing when they first moved in. And the cleverness of the residents were able to secure sometimes funding, but mostly labor to hook up the water, hook up the sewer and all the rest of the city services. I'm a big fan of it now. I was a slow adopter under the the tiny house, but I've just seen it as and having organized a 30 unit volunteer effort here in my own county, Nevada County, California. I just saw that how many people came out and, you know, everybody's able to use a screw gun and everybody's able to use a hammer and all of a sudden It was not only great for building accommodations for people who had none, but it was also great for the larger community in terms of building camaraderie amongst people who rarely talk to each other, but live right next door to each other. It was just a great experience and I've I've seen it happening all over the US. So 
So um, I've designed a few shelters along the way, but I'm not a fan of them, and partially because they're very hard to become communities. And my whole emphasis, and throughout that book, it describes a solution that, sure, you're getting a tiny house, but it's contrary to the housing first movement. This is community first. In fact, I feel like if you can accomplish the community, you can accomplish everything else, including the build out, for example. You know, my mantra for my whole career has been, if it doesn't work socially, why bother? You know, we're not just making real estate here. That's what the book emphasizes. Can you talk a little bit about, you You said the housing first model. Can you just let us know what that actually means? Well, there's a lot of emphasis around the country now, and I totally understand it and support it. But mostly I feel like you get to housing, quote unquote, first, if you accomplish community first, not only the community of the future residents who are going to be there, but the larger community too. help them see the advantages all around for everybody to see the advantages of getting people into housing ASAP. It's not only the, the moral thing to do, but it's also the smarter public administration thing to do. The public administration's number one job is the health and safety of the residents. No citizens are health healthy and safe outside in the cold amongst other people who need help. So I really believe in community first, which means, sure, you know, we organized a self-build situation and the, the future residents, the homeless folks participated, all the larger towns, residents participated too. And so a great deal of camaraderie, community, respect, empathy ensued to the point where it just became obvious, this is the thing to do. Let's get this job done. We know now better these people who are sleeping under our bridges and sure they've had a hard luck story and sure some of them are mentally ill. Some of them are addicted to one thing or another. Most of them are terribly undereducated for one reason or another, can't deal with the complexities of life. You know, the complexities of life can be tough on people who do have housing. It's they're virtu it's virtually impossible for people who don't have housing, you know, just getting their social security check and Paying their bills is more or less impossible. So they're very much cast adrift in short order. A lot of people write about how being homeless destroys people faster than anything else. I can't imagine being outside for a week unwittingly, unwillingly. And uh, the average homeless person in the U.S. dies at 49 years old, making it about a 30-year death sentence. We have done five projects in the last uh, 10 years, so we have gotten a lot of traction. But that book is not about the project in our town. It's about a 70 unit cottage project in Napa County, California, uh, in a town called American Canyon. American Canyon became incorporated about 20 years ago. And literally one of the first things they intended to do, wanted to do, was to accommodate their citizens that were sleeping under the bridges, sleeping in the bushes and such. And so they bought a piece of property that, from a, a foreclosed they probably bought it from the bank. It was foreclosed on. It was a 17-unit McMansion project in a halfway decent neighborhood. And they bought it and wanted to turn it into a very, very, very low-income project. Basically, everybody there is on Social Security, and the rent is about a third of your Social Security check. And now they have an address. They can more readily get uh, their Social Security. At the grand opening, one of the residents uh, stood up at the podium and said, hey, to the 150 people who came to the grand opening, he said, you know that freeway that you drove in to get to here? I slept under that freeway for the last six years. 
And now I feel like I've died and gone to heaven. In fact, I'm going to stay here until I do go to heaven. But the point is, is that he was just holding back tears the whole time because he was, and he said, and I'm a Vietnam veteran. So anyway, it's no way to treat our veterans. We have 22 veterans in that project, 22 veteran households. Many of them are mated, et cetera. But it was a town, American Canyon, who made it their goal, small town, 15,000 people who said, nope, this is a priority. You know, we don't have to develop more suburbs right now. We have that. We don't have to develop more commercial right now. We have that. What we need is a place for people who don't have a house. They made that a priority. They had a competition of 29 architects. I won. Largely, I won because I was the only non-single building solution, you know, double-loaded corridor, hotel-like. And I just couldn't really abide by that solution because it doesn't build community. And again, that's my emphasis, but also because it was not affordable for that site. In fact, the economics showed that it was going to be about uh, $2 million to tear down the 25 existing retaining walls on the site and another $2 million to replace the underground drainage on that site. So those $2 amounts made it impossible. And so I managed to come up with a little cottage solution and the institutional solution was not gonna work. Um, and, um, and it looked like it fit better on the landscape anyway. It's, it's very well delineated in that book where I emphasized the feasibility. I mean, the, the discipline of feasibility, you know, how do I make this work? How do I make this work? How do I make this work? Is very under considered in the discipline of architecture for the most part. And when um, you find somebody like our office who's very comfortable with figuring out whether a project is going to be economical or smart or enhance the community or be the most sustainable design, the most uh, energy efficient, et cetera, then, um, then you can really drill down in a hurry and make a decision. It's very binary. Is it going to work or is it not going to work? However, you have to do that homework. I mean, including spending long hours on the site trying to figure out how to make it little cottages. It was mission impossible. There's a 56 foot drop from one side of the site to another on a little three acre site. So, and they wanted all handicap accessible. So that was, you'll see on the cover of the book, there's a little Lombard street that we put into it, which made it possible to wheel about. The feasibility, I, I can't state that if they had stopped those preliminary 28 architects, there would be no project there because most people, including the bureaucrats in town, the, the people who initiated the project, just looked impossible. No, we can't do it. No, it's impossible. No, we can't do it. Doesn't look possible. And then it was not only possible, but it was the solution. Now, do you have a website to go along with your book? I don't have a website dedicated to the book, but I have a website de dedicated to our work which is cohousingco.com. I mean, my claim to fame normally is uh, the, the co-housing architect. Um, you know, I designed bunches of co-housing, including, you know, the project we just finished in Port Townsend and a project we did a while ago up in Bellingham, for example, and one that we're just finished in Spokane, Washington. So I'm going there this weekend. And all of our projects have a website, of course. Look up co-housing, you can find a lot. Tell us about the event that you're, you're hosting at. Oh yeah, thank you. April 8th at the University Friends meeting on um, 9th Street. It's going to be a public presentation about, I don't know how to put this delicately, but helping Seattle imagine a variety of new approaches to accomplishing housing. Things like 
community first, things like make it happen, get traction and just start making it happen. We can't have any more excuses. We can't have any more reasons that we just can't get these people off the streets. We have to get them off the streets post haste. Otherwise they will die. I don't know how many people died in Seattle last year, but I'll bet it was somewhere between two and 300, maybe more. I mean, 162 died last year in Spokane, Washington. I'm speaking there this weekend. It's unconscionable. Emotionally, obviously, it destroys people. But even for ourselves, everybody else who has a house, it garners an immense amount of guilt and an immense amount of turmoil in our own heart and house. How do you explain to your granddaughter as you're walking by and seeing homeless people why we as a society might let that happen? You can only blame individual responsibility so much. But when so many people are homeless, it's obviously a society-wide pandemic of sorts. And we could address this. We would, in fact, be addressing it much more economically if we did address it. You know, the average homeless person costs, well, there's been about 20 studies done now, and the current numbers are thirty dollars to $50,000 a year to leave somebody on the street per homeless person, thirty dollars to $50,000, whether it's medical care, police, fire, jail, mental care, toxic re- rehab. I mean, there's just so many issues that are that follow this pathology and it costs us 30 to 50,000 per person. So you would think we would accomplish this post haste just for self our own self-interest. A lot of wise cities around the country are finding this out and are using what I'm going to show you as a means of getting people into a community as fast as possible. I'm talking with Charles Durnett. He's the author of A Solution to Homelessness, and he will be here in Seattle for a meeting, which I will post in the show notes at University Friends. Now, tell me, who would be people that would come to this meeting? Only Seattle people or other communities that want to find out more? Anybody and everywhere. I mean, if you don't live in the Seattle area, I would at least pick up a copy of the book, A Solution to Homelessness in your town. But if you live anywhere around Seattle, I mean, which there's plenty of bedroom communities, et cetera, with people walking around with shopping carts. I would urge you to come. It only holds, I think it's 150 people, maybe 200 people. So you're going to want to get there early for lots of reasons, including finding parking, um, as I've been told numerous times, because they only have about 20 parking places on site. So you're going to want to come early. Anybody and everybody, of course, the reason I chose to do this in Seattle is I've done a number of projects in and around Seattle as an architect. And um, every time I'm downtown, you know, my civil engineers on First Street, for example, every time I'm downtown, I just see all these tents and all this languishing and all this humanity left on the table. And I just shake my head and say, what can I possibly do? Well, then I got hired to do this project and I've done, I don't know how many homeless projects now, five-story projects in downtown San Francisco and a one for moms and kids, et cetera. I'm going to show all these slides on Friday, on that Friday, uh, April 8th. I just couldn't stand it. I mean, it just really made me nauseous, physically nauseous to see all these tents on the sidewalks and all this humanity left on the table. And I really feel like these salient human beings have so much more potential, therefore giving our society a much better potential than we are currently realizing. There's a couple things that I want to touch back on just because if somebody came in late to this, I think what really struck me in listening to you and because I actually do work with homeless people in Everett is the community aspect and how 
we always see when they get involved and other people involved in a project, then there's ownership and camaraderie. So will you, I know you already talked about it, but talk again about the power of community. You, you can't underestimate it. High-functioning neighborhoods are not necessarily a, a thing of the past. They're certainly making a new resurgence. The, the notion that, yes, we need public facilities, buses, schools, et cetera. Yes, we need viable house family units. But the neighborhood, the immediate neighborhood can be a play a huge role in, especially for seniors not being lonely. So the goal is to set up people so that they know each other, care about each other, and support each other over time. And when, when we accomplish that, we accomplish making society easier to run. And that's not just rhetoric. We have a, a bus service in our county in Northern California. And they will take seniors around to the doctor, the pharmacy, the friend's house, the store, and all the rest. And I live in this 34-unit co-housing with 21 seniors. And the bus service has never been to our co-housing to take an older person to the, uh, the store. We just do it ourselves. That's a functioning neighborhood, and it has a lot of other benefits. I'm proud when I take 90-year-old Meg to the grocery store. I'm ennobled at some level. I love talking to her. She sits in the car while I run it and fill out her list and my list. But we go together, she supports me, I support her. She brings so much logical society making. After all, one of our key priorities as a species is to create a viable society. Knowing your neighbor is certainly one of the key aspects of that. So, I mean, it's a watershed when people know each other, care about each other and support each other at many levels. And that's very doable in homeless camps, I have found. We have a major dearth in our country right now of people who know how to do basic community building. You know, you hear about, you know, the lack of carpenters and the lack of plumbers and the lack of electricians. Well, we definitely have a lack of community builders or community organizers, which was Barack Obama's job before he ran for Senate of uh, Illinois. And um, it's a noble job. And it means getting together with strangers and saying, hey, what can we do together? to make our own lives better. It's not, you know, make our own lives more convenient, more practical, more interesting, more fun, more healthy, more socially relevant, less lonely. It's a long, long list of things that happen when neighbors know and care about neighbors. I think coming out of this time where more people than not have really struggled with loneliness and we have seen the power of community that I feel like maybe there will be more buy-in in the community. I feel like often people get caught up in fear because they have a judgment about the homeless. And so do you address that too in your meeting? Yeah, I do. You know, it's interesting. I was reading recently that um, if you have the mental disorder called ADHD, you have suffered from 20,000 criticisms by the time you're in the sixth grade. That's, that's fairly debilitating to an individual to the point that they write off, you know, family and, and, and other institutions. Well, if you're homeless, you're judged incessantly, basically. And there becomes a point where you don't give a darn what the rest of society thinks about you. So your, your uh, behavior is far less than accountable. It's far less than salient at many levels. And yet when you get into a high functioning village, all of a sudden you, you have a sense of belonging, a sense of identity, positive identity, and a sense of accountability. Hey, we have all decided that we're not littering 
uh, this place up at all. We've all decided that we're gonna keep our stuff within these confines. We've all decided we're not leaving anything behind. We've all decided to rake the, the leaves on the um, sidewalks. And then all of a sudden, that kind of activity, sharing of chores, uh, brings people together to the point that they don't resent society and, and, and are not as contemptuous of society as they often are. I mean, I, I got to think if I felt so cast adrift that society obviously didn't care, then I wouldn't care about them. I wouldn't care about society. So then, of course, I'm going to leave a mess. And of course, I'm going to yell at the middle of the night and leave my radio on too loud. And, and everybody suffers under those circumstances. The, the neighbors, the passerbys, it just doesn't serve anybody. And so to put people into a setting where they can get the help they need for one thing, mental and otherwise, and where obviously people care about them. One of my favorite books is called The Harvest Gypsies by John Steinbeck. It's one of his only two nonfiction books. And he writes about the 21 camps during the depression in California where 350,000 people are homeless. This family had pulled in a couple months earlier, dejected and really, really down. And then when they were leaving, he noticed how effervescent the driver was and, and um, how happy the family was and, and all the rest. And so he stopped and the guy rolled down the window and says, why are you so happy? And he says, well, you know, the state of California has proven to me that they can believe in me when I'm at my worst. And now I can't wait to go back and and contribute and do my share to make them feel how much I appreciated their support when it mattered. So, you know, that's real. That, that psychological, emotional sense of well-being and sense of wanting to give back is real. And so is contemptuousness. And so is resentment towards a society that hasn't felt the need to step up and make this a non-reality. We're talking with Charles Durnett, the author of A Solution to Homelessness. He is hosting an event at University Friends Meeting, 4001 9th Avenue Northeast on April 8th, which is a Friday at 7.30 p.m. It's something that people maybe from even communities around Seattle might want to go and find out more or get the book, A Solution to Homelessness. Again, tell us your webpage. Um, and by the way, the book is available at Elliott Bay. They sold 550 copies of my first book, which was about co-housing. So they are a quality bookstore. My webpage is cohousingco.com. C-O-H-O-U-S-I-N-G-C-O.com. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to hit on before we go? Now, thank you for asking that question. Of course, what I really hope to have, I hope what you're going to get out of this presentation, I hope, is a, a grounds, an obvious groundswell of citizens who say, you know, enough is enough. Let's stop with the excuses. Let's not, let's stop wasting so much money. I mean, I can't believe how much money certain cities are putting into the homeless crisis. But oftentimes, you know, the cities are, are designed to manage infrastructure and manage a lot of things. It would take a very entrepreneurial sort to make these little villages happen. So Really, what we need is their cooperation. I think there's tons and tons of people. I know there are tons and tons of people motivated to make things happen. And we mostly need cities to do things like relax their building code around, around tiny houses because they have been doing that all over the country. I don't know. I'm going to guess lightly 300 people died in Seattle last year. That's not life and safety. We know they're dying from the cold. We know they're dying from the damp. 
we know that they're being exposed to dangerous situations and we're leaving that irresponsible. What I hope to everybody gets out of it on Friday is, is the feeling of, you know what, we've had enough of ignoring this problem and how can we get going on addressing it? Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Lori. Really appreciate it. The event will be at University Friends Meeting, 4001 9th Avenue Northeast. It's April 8th, a Friday at 7.30 p.m. If you or someone you know works with the homeless, provides service for the homeless, has a ministry to the homeless, a church that is sensitive to the homeless, let them know. Share this podcast so that they can come to this meeting that we can begin to make a huge difference in our community. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community.